Hi, and welcome to NASIO Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Alex Whitaker in Washington, D.C. Today, we're talking with New York State CIO Tony Reddick about his CIO role in New York and the Virgin Islands, New York's new Joint Security Operations Center, how the pandemic has changed work environments, and a lot more. Let's get started. Tony, welcome to NASIO Voices, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to join with you today. I'm looking forward to answering your questions. Great. Well, we're looking forward to hearing your answers. So before we get into our main questions, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up serving as the CIO of New York State? Okay, great. As most know, I'm a former military officer, retired United States Army colonel. I was an infantry officer initially after graduating from a two-year military college in Alabama, Marion Military Institute. I did finish my bachelor's degree at Albany State College in Georgia in 1983 Came on active duty and served in the infantry, did the Airborne Ranger Shuffle as a student, served in an infantry unit. Uh, Later on in my career, I served as a transportation officer and logistician. Finishing up the last 15 years, I became an information systems officer. I attended the systems automation course in Fort Gordon, Georgia, after which I commanded, if you will, but actually the proper term is leader of the Army's help desk at the Pentagon. Had about 17,000 customers, about 269 help desk support technicians, military and civilian. And I eventually was recruited and had an opportunity to attend the National Defense University's then Information Resources Management College, where I was selected to work in the cyber and chief information officer lane. After finishing that course, I was asked to come back and be an assistant professor where I served teaching enterprise networking and telecommunications, as well as IT, cyber, and CIO leadership. After retiring, I became a civilian for a short period of time and worked as a consultant business development, securing cybersecurity contracts for a small DOD company. I then was recruited by the United States Virgin Islands to serve as the chief information officer in 2016. Did a total of 30 years active duty service after the Virgin Islands, I uh, took a break, played golf, played in the sun with my wife and our new home in Florida. It's when I got a call from Governor Cuomo's office to talk about being the chief information officer of New York in 2016. I've been in that role since December, and I've had a great time. I love serving the people of New York. That's great. So I guess the retirement and that sort of life awaits you again in the future, but you weren't quite ready to do it full time. (laughs) I'm not in a rush to have nothing to do, quite frankly. Um, I kind of want to fade out in the sunlight, but I still have a lot of energy left. Absolutely. I can get that. Okay. So you mentioned that you you first, as we like to think of it, you first joined the NASIO family as the CIO for the Virgin Islands. And we were thrilled to have you rejoin as the CIO for New York. It's always great when we uh, have a familiar face become a new CIO because we don't have to convince people of why they should get involved with NASIO. So we'd love to know what's been the biggest difference between working as CIO for the Virgin Islands and New York. And then on the flip side, what have the similarities been? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, thanks for the welcoming party. I actually enjoy NASIO and I encourage my team in the Virgin Islands to participate with me in all of those events to become conversant, use the resources that NASIO has, and we definitely took advantage of it in the Virgin Islands. Honored to get back. 
I can tell you, if you ask me on the surface what the big difference is, of course, that was Caribbean. It was hot and warm. I arrived in New York in December 2020. That particular session, they said it was the highest recorded snowfall, the eighth highest recorded (laughs) snowfall of the year. But that happens to me everywhere I go. It was the coldest year uh, since the frozen chosen in Korea when I served in Korea in the early 2000s. I was in Germany with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Of course, that was a first and hopefully a last forever. So I've had an opportunity to do first. Uh, The mission is nine million times as big. And I mean that quite frankly, 900 million times as big as the Virgin Islands. But the stress and the challenges are still there. It's all about taking care of the residents, taking care of the people and making sure that we take advantage of the resources, develop processes that we can institute and memorialize and also developing product solutions that put the territory and the state on the leading edge for productivity. And then we have to remain ethical, legal, and moral. So that speaks to my four Ps, people, processes, products, and policy. I get all of that here in New York as well. So you're obviously no stranger to high-pressure situations. You gave a talk at our 2018 mid-year about some of the high-pressure situations that you've been in. I know that you have experienced combat in Iraq and having been CIO in the Virgin Islands during two Category 5 hurricanes in 2017 and then helping Virgin Islands recover from Hurricanes Irma and Maria. How have those experiences shaped your leadership as state CIO? You know, I think that the worst thing a leader can be is indecisive. I've always believed in the old adage from the infantry school, lead, follow, or get out of the way. It has helped me, if you will, those stressful situations to be more decisive as a leader. It helps me to set the tone for leadership and those folks that work for me, giving them a principal direction to follow in. No two crises are the same. All emergencies are high power situations. There's nothing like two Category 5 hurricanes hitting the entire Virgin Islands. I remember I always used to relate to my first night in Kirkuk, Iraq, uh, going in to be the site lead and finally base commander for that uh, location in Iraq. We were being attacked with rockets and mortars, and I thought that was the most fearful and frightening night of my life until I had to endure the night in the Virgin Islands. After Irma struck St. Thomas and St. John's, We were quickly followed by Maria that took all of St. Croix out. I believe in working in high pressure organizations. It keeps me alive. As a matter of fact, I was at a meeting this past weekend with another IT organization that sponsors a lot of the activities that we do here in New York. And um, we went to the airport to return at 3 p.m. Well, the flight was finally canceled after moving through BWI's terminals in three different locations, probably about six miles of walking after midnight. Um, The next flight was seven o'clock this morning. Uh, We had about three hours of sleep. We went back to the hotel. We got ourselves together, three hours of sleep and was back at the job this morning because I was I felt it was important that I had two new senior executive level employees that I wanted to meet and do a face to face with eye to eye. I consider that a high priority and a precious situation where leadership is key and working at that pace is what I do. 
Well, I think Amy and I feel a little guilty than have you uh, on this podcast today with such little <laughs> sleep, but we, yes. uh, we certainly appreciate it. So you've talked a lot um, in some NASIO meetings recently about the fact that New York recently established a Joint Security Operations Center in Brooklyn that will serve as the nerve center for joint local, state, and federal cyber efforts, which will include data collection, response efforts, and information sharing. I would love to hear a little bit about how that center came to fruition and what you all hope to accomplish in the state with it. First of all, I'd like to give credit to Governor Hochul. This is her initiative, her vision, and I have to give credit to her for prioritizing cybersecurity. One of the things that I was concerned with when I arrived in New York, understanding that this is the banking capital of the entire free world, that this is the center of gravity of what the world thinks about, and that's New York, New York State, and New York City's boroughs, uh, what the world thinks about America. And I was particularly concerned with risks when it comes to cybersecurity. Governor Hochul met the challenge of cybersecurity and took this initiative for the Joint Security Operations Center. It's going to be an information sharing organization and location in Brooklyn, actually 11 Metro Tech in Brooklyn. Now understand that we in upstate New York refer to the entire five boroughs situation as a city. However, if you're in those boroughs, Manhattan is the city. But We've set it up so that we can provide data sharing, information sharing, and perhaps eventually a strike team that will give the whole of state approach to resolving the cybersecurity threat. We plan to do threat hunting. We plan to do all of those things to support the entire New York state enterprise, whether it be the city, counties, or major cities uh, within the state. So it's a big endeavor, and I'm really, really enthusiastic about getting this off the ground and making it work and using that continuous improvement process to make sure that we don't ever get to 100 percent. We always have to work to make sure that we defeat the threat and that we are aware of the threat. So information and data sharing is going to be key there. Sure, that's really fascinating. And I know a lot of times there's there's obviously a big and necessary focus on on the big urban centers where a lot of those critical infrastructure pieces are. But I'm wondering for those smaller localities who maybe don't have the traditional resources or knowledge or awareness or, or even just staff to meet some of these challenges, are there resources available for those communities as well? And, and how can they interact? Absolutely. We're going to be distributing endpoint security by a said company, if you will, to as many endpoints as we can reach. We've also established intergovernmental agreements with counties and local municipalities to bring them on board so that they can take care or take advantage of the resources that we plan to put in place. Understand that this isn't a science right now. It's the first of its kind in the nation. And we plan to reach the entire state enterprise as a whole. So whole of state is an important statement. It may be overused, but our intent is to make sure that we provide these resources to all of the residents in New York with regards to their governmental leadership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on a related note, we're hoping to see guidance from CISA this month for the state and local cybersecurity grant program. I'm wondering how New York is approaching this new funding source and what do you hope to accomplish with your uh, the resources that you might kind of distribute through the, the grant funding? Absolutely. We're monitoring this very closely and hope to have additional guidance soon. There isn't a government entity anywhere that couldn't use more resources, and that's a fact. The challenges are vast, and so those new resources are welcome. We're fortunate that Governor Hochul has delivered new state funding as a part of the state budget approved in April. 
that has helped us establish the JSOC, as we've talked about, extend endpoint detection to local governments and hire more skilled cyber professionals, and of course, leverage training. I'm all about training and education, making sure that we employ best practices and the best resources for New York State to lead in the cyberspace. But we have to do even more. New York State's enterprise is 50 plus agencies, and that's a lot of data. And we also have to take on an expanded role for assisting the locals. These resources, when available, will allow us to be better and more thorough as we provide support for the whole of state approach in New York. Well, I know that you and Alex and all of the the NASIO family is waiting for that guidance and uh, we look forward to seeing it hopefully soon. So here we are two and a half years into the COVID-19 pandemic. So much has changed that it's hard to remember in some ways what things were like before March of 2020. And at the top of the list for a lot of us, myself included, is that work has changed so much and the expectation for employees about work location flexibility and the ability to work from home has changed. So how do you see New York adapting to new work environments and that expectation from employees that they'll be remote at least part of the time? You know, that's a good question. And I talk with senior leaders about the new state of work as we move forward into the next decades. The pandemic has changed everything about work. And as an agency, we're 50% in the office and 50% remote. I think that's the right mix. The key is being productive wherever you turn on your computer. And we've achieved that in New York. You know, we want to be flexible with our employees and allow them to work from home, especially in IT where we're competing with the private sector for talent. One of the first things prospective employees now ask is whether there's a remote option. It's important to employees and their families, and it's a quality of life thing. We should not be hurting our ability to be productive by restricting our people to the old work environment. Change is inevitable. I agree with change, and remote possibilities are where we are in the world now. I support it 100%, as does Governor Hochul and the administration. Great. Well, it is a new world for sure, and who knows where we're going to be 10 years from now, but it's certainly interesting to see the approach that New York is taking. But before we let you go, we always like to take a few minutes at the end of our interview to learn a little more about your life outside of work in a segment that we call The Lightning Round. Are you ready? Absolutely. Great. Well, you have lived all over the world, and it seems like also all over the country. So we'd love to know what's the best place you've lived. You know, I'm absolutely partial to my friends in Germany. My wife and I were assigned there from 1989 to 1992. I went back in 1996. She visited because she's also a military officer at the time. uh, So she wasn't assigned there. We absolutely enjoyed the countryside. We enjoyed the food. We enjoyed the festivities, the festivals, and we definitely enjoyed Oktoberfest. (laughs) Nice. That sounds great. Yes. I I love Germany too. And it feels like everyone I know went to Europe this summer. So um, definitely trying to go back. Um, All right. Favorite book or movie? You know, my favorite book, believe it or not, is Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom. I read that book many, many years ago. And afterwards, my wife and I took a trip to South Africa. I got to relate to how he described the stress and strife in South Africa and understood exactly what apartheid meant. I never put it in perspective, though. Apartheid ended in 1994, and that was a shocker to me. 
I like to call myself a historian, but I never put it in perspective and realize how close 1994 is today and that apartheid ending. So The Long Walk to Freedom is a very, very intriguing book by Nelson Mandela. Oh, that sounds great. And uh, finally, and, and related to our previous question, who is your favorite historical figure? You know, I'm a Martin Luther King fan. Martin Luther King Jr. to me was one of the most influential people in my lifetime, and he will be an influential figure throughout history. He made a difference for a group of people who were disenfranchised, who were disconnected, who were subordinated. I respect the effort in his nonviolence approach. I respect his tenacity of purpose and his willingness to sacrifice his life for a cause that was greater than his own individual aspirations as a leader. I think he's done more for this country than any single individual. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100% on that one. Well, Tony, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today and share some of your experiences and advice and uh, plans for the future. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. We look forward to continuing our relationship with NASIO for sure. Us too. Thanks, Tony. Thanks again for listening to NASIO Voices. NASIO Voices is a production of the National Association of State Chief Information Officers. You can learn more at nasio.org. If you're a NASIO member and plan on attending our annual conference in October, registration is open now. We look forward to seeing you in Louisville, Kentucky. And if you'd like to see the presentation Tony gave at the 2018 NASIO Mid-Year Conference on his experience with the disaster response in the Virgin Islands, we'll have a link in the show notes. Talk with you next time.